Well, here in Toothless Onions uh, 1 and 2, we've got, uh, <coughs> I suppose, a, a typical opening of how Paul tends to open his letters, verse 2 of chapter 1, grace unto you and peace, and time and again we read this uh, greeting, grace and peace. And in fact, whenever grace and peace occur together in the same verse, grace always comes before peace. And the idea is, of course, that <coughs> if we really believe in grace, that God has saved us, that he looks at us as if we are Jesus, then we have peace. And therefore, the, the prospect of future judgment, of meeting with the Lord, etc., should not be some eternal question mark at the end of our destiny, uh, as it were, but we are assured that we are in Christ, and that by God's grace we really will be saved. <clears throat> now, if we don't have that peace from knowing that that ultimate question of our destiny is in fact answered already, then I would suggest it's because we don't perceive the grace of God as we ought to. And this is why he, he goes on in chapter 1 here to talk about their sufferings, etc. But he basically says the good news is, from verse 6 onwards, the good news is that there's the day of judgment coming. So, as so often uh, in the Psalms, the day of judgment is actually a comfort. And that is really how we should see it. That it's not this dread sort of moment of truth when we find out, will I or will I not be saved? It's really a comfort that finally all our issues in life meet their final resolution. And uh, we, of course, can't go the other way and just uh, be blasé about it and not see the, the seriousness of sin. In fact, it is by perceiving the seriousness of our own sins that we perceive our need for God's grace and that the whole thing does become so wonderful. Um, because if we don't have that sense, then the whole talk about grace and peace is, is, somewhat, uh, is somewhat irrelevant, uh, uh, as it were. And so he praises them, verse 3 of chapter 1, because your faith grows exceedingly, the love of each of you all toward each other abounds, so that we boast about you and the other churches of God. Now, Paul is so positive about his brethren, and... As I've said before, and I will say it again, if we cannot condemn our brethren, we cannot say that any baptized believer shall not be in God's kingdom. This therefore means that we have to assume that they will be in God's kingdom. And that completely elevates all our uh, relations with each other within the body of Christ. That we're meeting with people, dealing with people who, for all their irritations and weaknesses we believe will eternally be in God's kingdom. We're dealing with people who are looked upon by God as if, wow, look at that beautiful son or daughter of mine in Christ. He sees them as if they are Jesus, just as he sees us. And perhaps we uh, have a difficulty in looking at each other in that way because we don't actually perceive that we ourselves are seen like that by God. This is the whole huge significance of being in Christ. Now, he writes so positively about the Thessalonicans, but uh, it's quite clear, reading between the lines, that there were plenty of problems there. I mean, just look at chapter 3, uh, verse 11. We hear that there are some who walk among you disorderly, not working, busy bodies, and we uh, command you and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that with quietness they work, etc., 
Uh, and then he, he says, if people are not going to take any notice of what we're saying in this letter, chapter 3, verse 14, uh, then have no company with him. So there were clearly problems. And if you look back at 1 Thessalonians 5:14, uh, we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak. So there were the unruly, the feeble-minded, the spiritually weak in the ecclesia there in, in Thessalonica. And in Thessalonians 5, when he keeps talking about you are the children of light, so get on and live like it, and uh, don't get drunk in the night and don't go to sleep, uh, but be sober and be awake. I mean, the implication is that there were some in his readership or in his uh, audience, let's say, in Thessalonica who were not living in the day as they should do. And yet he is so positive about them to the point that he can boast about them to others. Now, this is a classic example, I think, of is the glass half full or is it half empty? He's fully aware of their weakness. He's not being naive. He's not some Alice in Wonderland sort of willfully naive person trying to see positive when it's really not there. If you just turn back to First Thessalonians chapter 3, you'll see an example of what I mean. Verse 10, 1 Thessalonians verse 10, he says... We so want to see you that we might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. So there was something lacking in their faith. And yet he says in verse 7, We are comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. So in all the awful experiences Paul was going through physically and psychologically, he was encouraged by their faith. But he says in verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians 3, that their faith was actually lacking in some ways. And yet, he could still be encouraged by what there was. This is like Jesus saying that uh, he is trying to fan a, uh, a smouldering flax into flame, rather than quench it, rather than stop it out. And so, when he, he talks uh, in 2 Thessalonians 1.3 about your faith is growing exceedingly, well, that doesn't mean that they had total faith. And when he says that your love for each other is amazing well, yes uh, but they weren't all like that there were people sponging off other people as we saw in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians there were people who were busybodies so we know that busybodying gossiping and all the sort of things that busybodies do getting involved in other people's lives when they don't need to and shouldn't and all the rest of it that is not exactly love towards each other and yet he's so positive about them. And as I say, this is not some willful naivety. He clearly faces up to their weaknesses. And so this really is a pattern for us. This positive view of each other and being positive. Not naively positive, not turning a blind eye. That is not what I have in mind. And that, as I say, will elevate our experience of ecclesial life. And because of that, uh, sorry, or th this only arises because we are seen as in Christ. Now, in verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 1, he says that Jesus will come to be glorified in his saints, to be admired in all them that believe. Now, that Greek word translated admire does carry with it the sense of incomprehension, to be sort of marveled at and just will be stunned by him. And that fits in, I think, with 
what Jesus says in one of the parables when he says that when he comes again he will say to the righteous well done, when I was thirsty you gave me something to drink when I was sick and in prison you, you visited me, you, you helped me you clothed me, you fed me and they are going to be so persuaded that this is a case of mistaken identity that they, or we let's say in front of Jesus at the day of judgment are going to argue back with him now that's pretty amazing that at the day of judgment we will argue back with Jesus like no when did we do that to you so his positive view of us is going to even then in the day of judgment be so hard for us to get a, get a head round no I wasn't that sort of person yes you were and the point is we will be presented as Jude says, faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. We will be presented, that is, in his eyes. Uh, and you've got this again in uh, Ephesians and Colossians, that in his eyes he will see us as perfect. And this is really love, I suppose, to see the loved party or person as, as perfect, uh, as, as wonderful. And this is how Jesus feels about us and how he will feel at the day of judgment. And so he says, verse 11, in that same context, we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. Now, are we worthy? No, we are not worthy. We can never be worthy in the sense of uh, being sufficiently good with all our good deeds, etc. But we are counted worthy. And although these are different Greek words than what you get in, in Romans, the idea is the same of being counted right. This is the whole idea of justification, to be declared right. That's what that word, that Greek word means. That righteousness will be imputed to us. That we are counted worthy. So there's a difference, if you see what I'm saying, between Jesus turning a blind eye and saying, yeah, well, you're not that great really, you're pretty awful, but uh, alright, you know, I'll uh, turn a blind eye to all that. There's something beyond that. There is a counting worthy. In a, well, in Romans he uses this uh, legal metaphor, that it's as if we are in court, and we are in one sense condemned, of course, but then <clears throat> in another sense, who is he that condemns? There is nobody in the witness box. The judge, Jesus, turns out to be our uh, advocate, our counsel for the defense, and we are declared right. We're, we're not only just sort of let off, we are declared right. And if you see what I'm saying, there's a difference between a condemned person coming up in court and being uh, let off when he's clearly guilty. That would be immoral. But we are declared right because of this status that we have in Christ and so we are counted worthy now of course worthy is the lamb only the lamb is the ultimately worthy one but because we are baptized into him and because we live our lives in the sphere as I would put it of being in Christ we are him as he was Abraham's seed so are we and so the promises that were to Abraham and his seed in the singular, as <clears throat> Paul says in Galatians 3, become true of us in the plural. Only because we are in him. And all that is true of him becomes true of us. 
And the, the implication is that other day of judgment, we will uh, admire him, verse 10, we will marvel at him with some element of incomprehension. But the things that I'm saying now, which we might sort of tick the boxes and say, yep, I, I can see that, I agree with that, when it actually comes to personal reality and personal feeling and experience as we stand there, this will be mind-blowing. This will be too much for us to believe. We might assume that when Jesus comes, suddenly everything clicks into place and uh, suddenly, you know, we shall be changed and everything about us and our whole world views will be changed. And yes, our nature will be changed, but I wonder whether that is the right approach to take, that somehow everything will click into place. It seems to me that not, that there will be a process of learning. And maybe the whole purpose of the Day of Judgment is for that benefit, for, for our benefit, for that purpose. It's not, as it were, that the judge needs to find out facts, and then he will look at the facts and weigh them up and make a decision. He, he's already doing that right now. Judgment in its essence is happening now. God from his side doesn't need a Day of Judgment. It, it is a metaphor. Um, and yet it's a very useful metaphor, and I would suggest that the whole purpose of judgment is for our benefit. It's to teach us. And yes, we will be saying, look, Lord, I didn't do that. You have got the wrong guy. This, is not, this was not me. I didn't go around in my life, you know, feeding you and visiting you in prison, and etc. But yes, you did. Now, <clears throat> verse 12 of chapter 1, I find uh, also significant. That talking about the day of judgment the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you well yes we understand that that God or Jesus will be manifested in us but if you take the concept of God manifestation or as it is here Christ manifestation too far it can end up destroying the value and the significance of the individual of the individual person and so there is a quote from uh, John Thomas that, that's quite popular in some circles to the effect that uh, God manifestation and not individual human salvation was and is God's purpose. Well, I'm not sure I agree with that. The Bible is about individual salvation, that you, whoever you are, Alison or, or Dimitri or Jose or whoever you are, and me as Duncan, that we as persons will be saved. There is personal salvation. That's what it's all about. That I personally shall be saved. Uh, and yet, of course, through us, the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified. And we know that the name really refers to the characteristics or the uh, component parts of his personality. And yet he goes on. <clears throat> and this is the bit that I have underlined in my Bible. And you in him the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you in that day, and you will be glorified in him. Now, that sort of puts, it, uh, puts another, another dimension onto all this. Yes, it is about the Lord Jesus and all that he stands for, his name, the essence of him as a person, being manifested and glorified in you and me, but... It is also about us being manifested and glorified in him. In other words, we are significant as persons, and, and we will eternally be saved. 
And that is what I think gives the, the ultimate uh, importance to human personality. But it, it won't all just get lost, as it were, in, in the Day of Judgment. That we as persons will live eternally together with him. And so he, uh, he, he goes on there in, in chapter 2, and he gives this special sign. They thought that Christ was about to come, and he says, not yet. Not yet, because the man of sin has still got to be revealed. And um, I don't really want to go into that, but I would observe that there is a similarity between what he says here, the, the sort of syntax of what he's saying, that don't think Christ is about to come because the man of sin must be revealed. Uh, and what he says to the Thessalonians earlier in 1 Thessalonians 5 where he says verse 1 of the times and seasons brethren and he's talking in the context about the coming of Jesus you don't need that I write unto you because the sign is that when they say peace and safety then sudden destruction is going to come when it seems Christ is going to come as a thief to his own household then you will know that that's the big sign so the great sign of 1 Thessalonians 5, as I see it, is a situation within the Lord's household. And I think that that's what 2 Thessalonians 2 ultimately is talking about, this uh, man of sin being revealed in the temple of God, verse 4 of chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians. You can take uh, the, the temple of God as, uh, as being the church. That, that is how Paul elsewhere uses that, that term. But as I say, I don't really want to go into that. I just uh, throw that out for uh, your homework. And he talks a lot about the, the contrast between truth and unrighteousness, or truth and deception. See verse 10, that these people believe all the deceit because they didn't receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Now, we can understand the phrase the truth as sort of anything vaguely connected with our church life our ecclesial life, our religious life but I don't think that that is particularly how he's using it here he's simply pointing out a difference between uh, deceivableness of unrighteousness and loving truth if you really love truth in your inward parts you will not be deceived by that which is untrue and so it's not simply a, a question of knowing uh, true theological statements and therefore saying, I love the truth and I have the truth. Loving truth is far wider than that. I mean, David is maybe the great definition of this when he uh, sins with Bathsheba and uh, afterwards when he repents in the Psalms, he says that you desire truth in the inward parts. Truth in the inner man is a recognition of human sin and a recognition of God's grace and the certainty of his salvation of me a sinner that is the ultimate truth and so he says in verse 12 those who did not believe the truth had pleasure in unrighteousness so I think he's using the truth there in a far wider sense than uh, knowing true doctrinal propositions because you can know all the true propositions and yet still take pleasure in unrighteousness so then truthfulness truthing um, and there is a Greek word that Paul uses sometimes that can't really be translated into English but it literally it would be that to truth, to do truth to, to truth uh, truthing in love 
um, is to be true to yourself, to be in your in your self-talk, to be true, to face up to who you really are, what you do, what you think, uh, and to face up to the utter truth of the fact that God loves me and Christ has died for me and his grace for me is for real. Now those who don't have that love of truth are sent by God, verse 11, strong delusions, so that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who did not believe the truth. So then God does deceive people. Let's get that clear. There is an upward spiral in spirituality, and there is a downward spiral, whereby God is capable, these verses are pretty clear, I think, God is capable of sending people delusion, so that they should believe lies. When you look at all the, the rubbish that people believe, and I don't just mean in religious terms, uh, but the rubbish they believe about themselves, about other people, uh, etc. There's an element in which they have been deceived into that. Now, what this means is that we can never take a break in spiritual life. We can never take a holiday, say, well, today I got a day off. Today I will not move down the spiral, and I won't move up the spiral. Today I will just be passive. No. We are actually continually in a position whereby we are going to be uh, influenced one way or the other by, by God. And this idea of God working in human life, you see it really in verse 13 where he talks about God's plan to give us salvation. But how does that salvation work? It works through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Now, the belief of the truth, and the ultimate truth, is that God loves us, that Christ died for us, that he rose again, that he will come again in his glory, and we who have been baptized into him and believe into him, that we really will be saved. He's saying that there's that element, and the sanctification of the Spirit. And I understand that to mean that God is at work in our lives through the Spirit, to cleanse us, to sanctify us, to prepare us for that eternity. And this idea of God being at work in our lives, you've got in verse 17, where he says that, uh, May God our Father establish you in every good word and work, that God is looking to establish us. Going on into chapter 3, verse 3, The Lord is faithful who will establish you and keep you from evil. So there is an element in which God will not lead us into temptation, but will keep us from the evil, and will establish us in that way. So there's a downward spiral, whereby God sends people a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, if they don't really love truth. And yet, for those who do, God will establish us. There is this process of sanctification of the Spirit, Whatever quite that means, however quite that works out in practice, my simple point is that God is at work in human hearts, keeping us from the evil. And it's really a a case of keeping in there with God, of keeping in there with his uh, process, his program that he has for us. And so it does, of course, to some extent depend on us. Sanctification of the Spirit, I think that's God's side, and belief of the truth on our side. And let's not underestimate this, that we have genuine free will, and we are masters in that sense of our own destiny. 
And I notice a couple of times here in these two chapters, Paul talks about how they believed because he had preached to them. You've got it here in chapter 2, verse 14. He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus. Our gospel. He means our preaching of the gospel. If Paul had not preached that gospel to them, they would not have obtained or had the hope of obtaining the glory of Jesus. And in chapter 1, verse 10, he will come, Jesus will come to be glorified and to be admired in you, in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed. So he's saying that in that day, when the Thessalonians go into God's kingdom, when they are standing there at the day of judgment, glorified, and being glorified in Jesus, that is all because our testimony among you was believed. Now, I don't think that he's just sort of emphasizing his own glory or whatever. I think he's emphasizing that really, as he says to the Corinthians, so we preached and so you believed. But there is this element, I think, in the final, let's call it, algorithm of how God works, where people's salvation does to some extent depend on our witness to them. And I say to some extent, but because I can't you know, quantify it, I can't define it, but there is an element in the algorithm there, whereby perhaps if we don't preach the gospel to others, they may never have that opportunity. As he also says to the Thessalonians, God has entrusted us with the gospel. He has enfaithed us. He's delegated his work to us. And so that's like it was in the parable of, of, the, of the talents and all that, that the Lord really gave all his wealth into the hands of his servants and he went away. And he leaves it to us to do his work. See chapter 2 verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians. We were allowed of God to be put in trust or enfaithed or trusted with the gospel. And even so we speak. Now, when you delegate something to other people, you're taking a risk. They might mess up. They might be like the guy who hid his money in the, in the earth and didn't do anything with it. Or they may be like Paul and, and do well and get a tenfold increase. So then, all, all I'm saying about the sanctification of the Spirit and this element of God at work in us does not in any way take away from the real possibilities that stretch out in front of us in the context of human life, the possibilities which there are. And as we focus again on the cross, on Jesus there, we see really a man who served God on the highest possible level, going on, keeping on where we give up, where we would have given up and where we do give up. And the point is that we, for all our failure to, <clears throat> to grasp the, the metal, to, uh, to forget about carpe diem and, and not grasp the moment, time and again, we are counted as in him, and we therefore really will be saved.